This is the city, Seattle, County of King, State of Washington, Seattle, USA. In all this wide, wide world, there's no other city quite like it. I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Downtown Stories from the Downtown Seattle Association. Downtown Stories is a podcast exploring the history of the Downtown Seattle Association. It's all about understanding the city where we live and finding out how it came to be one of the most dynamic downtowns anywhere. On this episode, in the early 1980s, like many big American cities, downtown Seattle was known for office buildings and retail shops. But things were changing. DSA and other civic leaders recognized a need and an opportunity to create workforce housing that would support the city's growing and diversifying downtown. One of the people most closely involved in DSA's efforts to create new housing in that era and to launch the DSA initiative that became Bellwether Housing is Virginia Anderson. Anderson came to Seattle in the early 1970s. She worked for the city and then for a private developer before later serving for many years as director of Seattle Center. In the early 1980s, as now, housing and policy decisions about downtown Seattle often generated heated debate. The biggest philosophic difference was the belief that highest and best use is the purpose of downtown and highest and best use was defined as where can you get the most dollars per square foot, period. And housing did not stack up with highest and best use. It was a mild spring afternoon when I met Virginia Anderson for conversation at a coffee shop in downtown Seattle. How is it that an organization like the DSA, what's now DSA, which I think a lot of people think of as promoting retail and you know cleanup and that sort of thing. How does an organization like that come to realize that housing is an issue? Painfully, and through a long process. Um, it actually came about as a reaction to the CAP initiative, uh, led by citizens to cap the height of buildings downtown. And DSA started working with City of Seattle on a comp plan, a brand new comp plan for downtown. And I was fairly new in DSA. Um, I had worked in community development and left the City of Seattle and had begun working with Cornerstone Development and joined DSA and was soon a member of the board. And uh, the work on the comp plan was divided into five different categories. There was housing and transportation and infrastructure and urban design. It, 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 was a, it was just one of the most exciting times ever because it was the whole business community together learning and thinking about what makes cities work as a whole. Like basic concepts of Jane Jacobs of eyes on the street and should there be housing downtown and all of those were grist for conversation and we were all learning together. Did it seem as radical at the time as it sort of sounds that long ago to be thinking about Seattle in those terms? Absolutely radical. Absolutely a complete change. I can remember a group of us went to a ULI conference in Chicago. And ULI is? Urban Land Institute. Okay. And they did some of the best uh, conferences, uh, papers, all kinds of research about what makes cities work. And a group of us, of developers, bankers, retailers, went to this conference in Chicago. I think it was in Chicago. And we had been at this effort for about a year, talking about what makes a street 
a street you want to walk on, what makes a city a city you want to live in, work in, what makes it successful. And I remember that there were three developers who were quite prominent and active at that time were walking behind me and I heard one of them say to the other, who allowed them to build this building with a big blank wall on this street? You know, that's just outrageous. Well, that's how buildings were being built in the 70s and no one thought about the street life. So it was with John Gilmore and then this infrastructure of volunteers who were the board members leading committee efforts to deal with what role does housing play in a successful downtown. And it was, that was probably the single most controversial issue. I would even take probably out because our committee worked hard on what, what should happen downtown. Uh, there was a very organized group who uh, were opposed to DSA just by principle, by um, the supposition that you guys are the elitists and you guys don't care anything about people. Who, now, who was that group? Can you name those people, those organizations? John Fox, John Fox. Okay. was the big leader of that. Okay. And so as I went out as a committee chair on the housing component to talk with different community groups, he would often heckle from the back or accuse me of all kinds of things. But it was a, it was a very rich and dynamic conversation about housing. So our committee developed six recommendations that we took to the board as part of that lengthy, lengthy process. And in that, uh, we recommended, one was the creation of a nonprofit to create affordable housing downtown. That we were seeing it destroyed, the SROs, single room occupancy units, the really low income housing, and so we were recommending that. We recommended a citywide levy, the first one. It actually became the first levy to support um, affordable housing in that first one it was focused on seniors and disabled but it was creating housing in the downtown corridor we supported things like zoning changes that are still being discussed to this day like accessory units and how much park you know all of the things that affect density of housing so I went to the board made our report our six recommendations it was divided vote and they tabled the discussion and asked us to go back and look at it i came back a second time went through the report the committee hadn't budged said these are our recommendations it was very divided and heated they tabled it and asked me to come back another time what was their hesitation and why were they tabling it each time the biggest philosophic difference was the belief that highest and best use is the purpose of downtown and highest and best use was defined as where can you get the most dollars per square foot period and housing did not stack up with highest and best use and it was a little bit like some of the debate that goes on between the right and the left you know now about economics not about goodness or badness there were people on the board who believed you cannot raise a family in a downtown setting. It turns out that I was raised on the south side of Chicago in a very, very urban setting. Barbara Dingfield, who was chairing 
uh, with Judy Runstead, the overall comp plan thing was raised in New York City. Yeah. And so we would <laughs> we were both like, well, okay, but we did all right, you know. So there were personal, there were value judgments, there were economic disputes, and finally the third time when they again had a very divided vote, they asked me to take it back to the committee and I said, no, we've done enough, we either need an up vote or a down vote, either way is fine. And it was a divided vote. DSA did not like operating with a divided vote. They tended to operate by consensus, and uh, and we won wow. with our proposals, <laughs> which included the creation of this nonprofit and support that DSA gave to the first ever housing levy and proposals for zoning changes in the neighborhoods. However the main opposition to the housing proposal withdrew all of their properties from DSA. And it was a hefty amount. So DSA lost a lot of revenue in that vote. So when you ask, is it, was it contentious? It was very contentious. And it's a credit to people that they stood up to that yeah. and they voted. No, it's interesting, you know, it's 2019 now, and I talk to lots of people because I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in the dense Seattle will be fabulous. Like, the Seattle about 100 years from now will be incredible. You know, there'll be, there'll be the, the, the density will be there, and the transportation and the amenities will allow you to live in Seattle more easily than you can now without a car and be able to rely on public transportation. And I, but I'm old enough to remember Seattle in the 1970s, and it was a much smaller town. You could pull up your car and park it outside at a meter just about anywhere and pay like 60 cents an hour or something. It was, it was, and it was always available. It was very easy to find parking right. downtown. Right. So hearing you describe the reluctance of this, of the committee members to understand, you know, the, you and your other colleagues who'd grown up in urban areas and, you know, and turned out okay, you know, um, right. it's, can you kind of maybe characterize what Seattle, what downtown Seattle in particular was like in your memories in the late 1970s, around 1980 or so when we're talking about? It was, I, I had worked in the Department of Community Development for three years and I was a downtown projects project manager. Mm -hmm. So I worked on the first local improvement district projects that the city had done with downtown. That's how I got involved with downtown. It was first in my role as a government employee. We did an LID to improve Washington Street because the International District, I mean um, Pioneer Square was a focus for the mayor at that time. Um, and that was, Ellen Black was doing some of the first redevelopments down there of buildings and wanted to improve that street. I worked on the Pike Street. There was an LID that we did on Pike Street. So I got to meet a lot of the landowners and property managers because we needed their support for yeah, LIDs. Yeah. We did one on Fifth Avenue. And so all of my work had been, uh, in fact, the park at Third and Bell, which is now a dog park and has gone through many iterations, <laughs> was one of my original projects back in the 70s. Oh, that's cool. Because we had just changed the zoning in the Denny Regrade after years and years of it being stuck. Um, and that was the first poor, poor park that was two lots and it had to accommodate a basketball hoop, a major work of art from the Arts Commission, grass, a parking place for the Parks Department cleaning people. I mean, it was like 
the first time we'd done yeah, it. So Seattle's been, always had big tents, hasn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I interrupted Everywhere. you. were going to say. But all of those concepts were new. And so when I was working on those, the Project for Public Spaces was a place that had videoed how Americans use urban spaces. And they were doing groundbreaking work in in why plazas work in Italy, but they don't work in America, and how we use space differently, and how streets function, and people had discovered the whole concept of urban design, and that there are actually principles and activities that enhance that experience. Before that, it was pretty much private property within less tightly constrained zoning laws that you got to do what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a massive shift and there was more interest in Seattle, there was uh, development going on in the late 70s that could support these civic endeavors. Um, there were a lot of bank headquarters, financial institution oh, yeah. headquarters back in the late 70s. So the actual leaders, I was thinking we could have had this meeting at the top of Rainier Square because <laughs> that's where we launched what was called Seattle Housing Resources Group and then Housing Resources Group and now Bellwether. But that's where we launched it at a breakfast, Herb Bridge and I, um, at the top of Rainier Square. There were so many banks that were in financial institutions. And remember, they all had then, as a national response to redlining, they all had CRA requirements. Oh, that's right. That's community right. reinvestment. So banks were looking for opportunities to invest in the community through partnership with organizations that they could trust. It sounds like a real golden age of it was corporate amazing. and civic sort of it was, synergy. It might be kind of an overused word, but it sounds like it was just almost perfect in some it ways. It was, it was, the, it, uh, tax law had changed on a national level to give tax credits for preservation of historic That's buildings. Right. Yeah. Um, we were setting up tax incentives um, or development uh, incentives for inclusion of housing, for, you know, all kinds wow. of things were happening because everyone was, for the first time in a long time, at least here on this coast, thinking about the city, not just the building or the block. And we were all learning together. Yeah, because isn't this, this is not too long after the urban redevelopment age of that we're, they're sort of mowing down, like in Boston with Scully Square, they made for government center. Correct. And what they and wanted to do with Pike Place Market. And right. Exactly, and what they wanted to do at Pike Place Market is a perfect example, and it's one I carried into the planning for Seattle Center. They had intentions for the best of what was considered urban design redevelopment in their plan for the market. And it was a mess. Yeah. It was a terrible mess. Were, were those earlier things missing the human element? In, not in, sort of just not intentionally, but was there just sort of a different mindset that where the the human, the true actual human interaction, human interaction with the city landscape, hadn't even really been considered properly? Or it wasn't because it's not malicious that they wanted to tear down uh, Pike Place Market. Oh no 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 yeah, no no yeah. no 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 no! It was decrepit. It was falling yeah. apart. It was rat infested. It was a mess. And DSA was supportive of that, actually. They wanted to tear down. They were one of the right. supporters of that. And, <laughs> and what was planned was mixed use development with housing and 
high-rise office and ground-level retail and parking underneath and you know all the standard yeah. packaging yeah. and I learned from that when I went to Seattle Center with Disney had just presented its plan oh, which right. was another homogenized <laughs> looks like Southern California plan to redo Seattle Center and again people went ballistic Man. so the market and that learning around what is it that people respond to in a city but it was also happening in America on a national level and uh, I look at the old Seafirst building the big black box mm -hmm. the zoning had been changed to require them to do a plaza around that building but it turned into a windswept um, <laughs> no person's land yeah. and I as a project manager researched all the zoning and had to come up with new zoning changes that would allow them to put the retail pavilions in and the seating and things like that that would make it a space we wanted to be in. Yeah. Everyone goes well St. Mark's you know Piazza and you're like well we're not them <laughs> and so the project for public space is videoing work. The people who were writing about it, urban design was taking off in America. People were thinking about it. And I really think Seattle, because of the CAP initiative, because of the opposition, we were forced to come up with more than no. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Um, people wanted to preserve housing. You know, John Fox's intention was to preserve low-income housing. And rather than just keep saying no, 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 we needed to really think about the role that that plays. Think about all the retail workers, all the clerks in the financial institutions, the people who drive the, you know, people who are listening, who are living, need to live closer. So those were the first times we were thinking about it. And out of that came the proposal that DSA would take the lead in creating a nonprofit housing development. Corporation for Affordable Housing. And so that first meeting at the top of Rainier Square, um, John Mangles. Uh, oh, John Mangles okay. right. uh, from Rainier Bank was head of Rainier Bank and he hosted a breakfast. Her bridge to the day he died would give me a high five every time all those years <laughs> later. I think it was 1981. We now had approval from the board to create this nonprofit. We had pulled some people together who agreed to serve on a board, and now we needed money to launch this. And so that morning, we presented the case to this group of business leaders, and we walked out of there with $750,000 to launch this, which back in 1980-81 was really enough for us to get some part-time staff, to start doing things we had on our, on our board, actual architects and builders, and you know, we did a lot of the work ourselves in creating it. Wow. And so what was the first project that you could point to? That We focused on 907, Jeffer 908 Jefferson and we made that project work and we had a big opening and DSA filed through and everyone was proud <laughs> that we had created housing and then we had something under our belts and we got three more we made a very good decision in the very beginning which is we got three-year pledges of funding so that we weren't out every nice. year the good news is we had enough runway the bad news is people forget about you in the intervening two and a half years because you're not back there. So 
GSA would forget about us a little bit. Um, but that's how it started in Seattle Housing Resources Group and the intention was just to create affordable housing downtown. We were always focused on maybe 40 to 90 percent of median income. We were not focused on homeless. That wasn't. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I was a member of the group that started Plymouth Housing, oh, which okay. was focused on homeless and the lowest possible. Mm -hmm. So those two organizations were actually created in the same year. I didn't realize that. Oh, mm -hmm. wow, that's great. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, looking back, if you think about, you know, if those two organizations hadn't been created. I mean, think about the issues in Seattle now with, with housing and you know affordability and availability. I mean, what would the city look like if these things hadn't been put together? Can you, can you even imagine? Was it I think had DSA not had the vote, not had been willing to take on the contentiousness and make a stand, we could have been fighting with people who cared about, who were low-income housing activists, fighting over the height of every high-rise, the you know what could be built and what could for quite a long time. I think the turning point was learning that housing was important to a vibrant downtown, learning that affordable housing is a critical component of that, being able to think for the first time that the cost of living in a city is the cost of getting to your job and your apartment you know that it's how to think about it in a bigger way i think had that conversation not resolved the way it did back then it could have been a very long time of fighting and dsa could have dug its heels in which some members wanted it to do and it could have been full-scale war and i think we as a city would have missed what was a kind of renaissance for Seattle. Um, a rethinking of our retail core, a rethinking of you know, all of the elements that make the city work. So I think it was critical and I, I think Bellwether, you know, 3,000 some units later, is one component of a very complex puzzle now. And it's always puzzling to me that the business community doesn't beat its chest more in pride about what was created there. And, and they not only um, have built their own housing, uh, but they have partnered with mental health organizations and AIDS organizations when we were dealing. They've partnered with all of these groups that have no developmental skills to help them build housing and then be able to turn it over to them for management. They continue to manage 2,000 some units. You know, it's, it's an entity that I think DSA is rightfully, or should rightfully be proud of. You've been listening to a conversation with Virginia Anderson, former director of Seattle Center and a leader of DSA's housing initiatives in the early 1980s. She was my guest on Downtown Stories, a podcast from the Downtown Seattle Association. I'm producer and host Felix Bunnell. See you next time for more Downtown Stories. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for